So it's March 1st in 2020, Laguna Beach, and we're going to be reading from the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 18, which is the conclusion, and we're going to be reading near the very end of the conclusion of the Bhagavad Gita. We're looking at text 58. Machchita sarvadurgani, mat prasada tarishisi, patat chet twam ahankaram, na shroshiti vinashisi. So, machchita, anybody know what chitta means? Consciousness. Machchita. So, fill your consciousness with me. Then, sarvadurgani, anybody have an idea what durgani means? Dur? Difficult. Durgani, difficult to go through some obstacles. Sarva Durgani, all the obstacles. Mat Prasadat. So what is Prasadat? And we don't mean samosas. Mercy. Mat Prasadat, my mercy. Trisyasi, you'll pass over. Atat Chetwam Ahankaram. What is Ahankaram? Your ego. Twam ahamkram, your own ego. So, atachet, if you have your own ego instead. Na shroshiti. What does shrosh mean? To hear. If you don't hear me, vinashiti, vinashiti, you'll be lost. So, here Krishna is predicting the GPS system. If you're connected, you'll know where you're going, and if you're not connected, you'll be lost. So translation, if you become conscious of me, you will pass over all the obstacles of conditioned life by my grace. If, however, you do not work in such consciousness, but act through false ego, not hearing me, you will be lost. Srila Prabhupada's purport. A person in full Krishna consciousness is not unduly anxious about executing the duties of his existence. The foolish cannot understand this great freedom from all anxiety. For one who acts in Krishna consciousness, Lord Krishna becomes the most intimate friend. He always looks after his friend's comfort and he gives himself to his friend, who is so devotedly engaged, working 24 hours a day to please the Lord. Therefore, no one should be carried away by the false ego of the bodily concept of life. One should not falsely think himself independent of the laws of material nature or free to act. He is already under strict material laws. But as soon as he acts in Krishna consciousness, he is liberated, free from the material perplexities. One should note very carefully that one who is not active in Krishna consciousness is losing himself in the material whirlpool, in the ocean of birth and death. No conditioned soul actually knows what is to be done and what is not to be done. But a person who acts in Krishna consciousness is free to act because everything is prompted by Krishna from within and confirmed by the spiritual master. Machchita sarva durgani, mat prasada tarishyasi, atachet twam ahankaram, nasroshiti if you become conscious of me, you will pass over all the obstacles of conditional life by my grace. 
If, however, you do not work in such consciousness but act through false ego, not hearing me, you will be lost. So everybody would like a life where they can pass over all obstacles and not be lost. Yes? It's interesting that Krishna is not promising here a life free from obstacles. He doesn't say there won't be any obstacles. He says you'll cross over them. They'll be insignificant. But if you don't hear me, you'll, you'll be lost. And Prabhupada writes in the purport, but people don't know what to do and what not to do. I, I'm sure we've all experienced in our life that sometimes we make what we think is a very good decision and it's not. And sometimes we think, oh, this will be a very bad situation and it's not. You know, we may have a difficult time knowing what we should avoid and what we should accept. And we have so much anxiety in our life. Basically, a life without a connection with Krishna, without a connection with God, with the divine, is a life full of anxiety because we don't know the results of our decisions and our actions. We just don't know. And we see calamity happening all the time to everybody. And young, healthy people get injured, get diseased, or die, or become bankrupt, or their spouse cheats on them, or they get fired, or right? We, we see that. And then we see people who don't seem to deserve anything good, and they get millions of dollars, and they, I mean, we just see that, that life is so uncertain. You know, whether good things happen, whether bad things happen, seem to be only somewhat influenced by our own actions. And so always full of anxiety. Is what I'm doing, is it going to work out? Is it going to work out the way I like? If it works out the way I like, will I be happy with how it works out? Sometimes all of our plans work out exactly the way we planned, and then we decide that we didn't really want that after all. Yes? I have a friend who became a lawyer, and after all those years of study, realized she didn't like being a lawyer. So, here Krishna is giving us the key to having a life free of anxiety. He said, just be aligned with me. Just be conscious of me. And as Prabhupada so beautifully writes in the purport, that Krishna is our, our most intimate friend. You know, earlier in the fifth chapter... Krishna speaks about how to have a life of peace. He says, Bhoktaram Yagatapasam Sarvaloka Maheshram Suridam Sarvabhutanam Gyatramam Shanti Nichiti. He said, Look, I'm controlling everything. I'm really the one that everyone should be working for, and I'm your best friend. Many, many, many years ago, I mean, 20, 25 years ago, I remember going to India, and I was sponsored by this very rich gentleman who wanted me to do some work for a school. So after I did that work for the school, he said, would you like to go to Vrindavan in Mayapur? I'm like, sure. He said, okay, I'll arrange it. You know, and he got the tickets, and he arranged the car, and he arranged a place for me to stay. I didn't have to worry about anything. And I thought, you know, if some wealthy person in this world, if they're your friend, they do that. Imagine when Krishna's your friend. You know, when you're connected with the boss of everything, who has everything, and who can direct you. Now, of course, you may argue and say, well, 
There's so many examples in the scriptures and even in contemporary life of people who are fully connected with God and seem to have so many difficulties. Of course, the primary example in the scripture is the Pandavas, who Krishna was incarnated on earth and they were speaking to him literally face to face and still they had so many difficulties. Again, Krishna's not saying, you won't have any difficulties. He's saying, you won't be affected by them. You won't experience them as difficulties. He talks about this also in the sixth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, where he says that to be free of all miseries caused by material contact is to have a different consciousness, a different awareness. This is an awareness that Krishna is everywhere and everything and always present with us, and therefore everything is good. Not that everything is good in some kind of a sappy, sentimental way. It's not people think everything's good means everyone's going to be a millionaire and everyone's going to have, you know, an orange tree and a coconut tree in their backyard. But that one sees the good in everything on a spiritual level. And one experiences, as Prabhupada says a little later on in the Bhagavad Gita, a thrill not just occasionally but at every moment. And this is achievable by anyone in any situation, no matter what their life may look like externally. It may look like externally they have some disease or they're poor or whatever, you know, their husband yells at them or their wife yells at them or their dog yells at them or their boss yells at them or they have a crazy, they're in a country with a crazy government or something like that. So it may look like that externally, but they're not experiencing life like that. They're experiencing life with a thrill at every moment and they're guided from within as to how to act in such a way that they feel completely fulfilled internally. So this requires to be conscious of Krishna rather than to be directed by our own ego. And the principle of it is is just so simple. It's like if you use a car the way it was designed, you're more likely to use the car in a way that will make you happy. It's just such a simple concept, right? I, I give the example all the time. If you want to exit this room, you go through the door. You don't go through the window or through the wall. You know, you, you work with the design of the building. Like if we want to be healthy, we eat food that's designed for a human body. We don't eat, say, wood, right? Like a beaver or a termite. Our bodies are not designed to eat wood. If I decide I'm going to eat, you know, the cup instead of drink the water, then I'll become ill. Like so much of the food that people eat nowadays, it's not really food, right? And it just, just tastes something like food. So it's a very similar concept. If I'm working in the world the way the world is designed, then I'm going to have a happy life. And if I work in the world according to my own ego, well, I think that's a door, I'm just going to walk through the wall, uh, then I'm going to suffer. Is that a fairly simple to understand concept? And I mean, I think we see... Even, in, even if someone's not a spiritual person, 
I think we can understand that people who just act according to their own ego are not very happy people. Even if they are very materially successful, I'm sure we can think of examples right off the bat of people who have a lot of money and a lot of power and a lot of fame, but are just completely egotistical people. And therefore they're not happy. Yeah? You know, they're always seeing enemies everywhere and threats everywhere and they're barking at people for no reason. Yes? So even if you have everything in this world, if you're egotistical, you're not happy. And even if you have nothing in this world, if one is in harmony with the divine, one is happy. We have experience of this, yes? In our own life and through people we know or people we read about in the news and so forth. So then the main question becomes, how do I do this much to tough? Because that, that's the qualification here, much to tell. Have my consciousness absorbed in the divine. As soon as we do that, everything else follows. If I have my consciousness absorbed in the divine, then I cross over all obstacles by the grace of the Lord, and I'm not going to be involved simply in my ego. So there's many, many ways to be conscious of the divine. There's practically an infinite number of ways to be conscious of the divine. We're just going to look at some of them, and then we can have some discussion. So, of course, one way to be conscious of the divine is through what people ordinarily think of as religious rituals. And because people think of them as religious rituals, uh, they tend to have kind of a bad name, especially in modern society. We think about them as something antiquated. But... A real religious ritual is simply a means of connection. Just like if I want to call someone that I know. Let's say I want to call my daughter who's on the East Coast. All right, so I have to have a phone, yeah? Right? And she has to have a phone. Both of our phones have to be connected to a network. Then I have to dial the correct number. If I get one number wrong, it doesn't work. Right? And I have to notice the time, because she's in a different time zone. I just spent some time in India, where the whole country is on one time zone, which is a little peculiar. Not as peculiar as China, where the whole country is on one time zone. But. So the person driving me to the airport said, what time is it now in your country? And I said, well, it's many different times in my country. It depends where in my country you are. So also, if I want to call my daughter, I have to be conscious of time. Otherwise, I may be calling her at one in the morning. Right? So you could say that I have to do, if I want to connect with her, I have to go through a kind of ritual. I have to have the right device. Oh, it has to be charged, right? So I have to have the right device. She has to have the right device. It has to have electricity. It has to have a network connection. I have to get the right number. And it has to be at the right time. And if any of those things are not operative, I can't make the connection. So throughout the world, the religious rituals are ways by which one can connect with God. And often there's parameters at this particular time, this particular prayer said in this particular way, or lighting this lamp in this particular way. You make a connection. I mean, we can even understand that in terms of an affectionate relationship with somebody. 
right? So I visit, I have two sons, so when I visit each of my sons, they each have dishwashers. But each of them has different ways they want to load the dishwasher. And when I'm at one son's house, if I load the dishwasher the way they do it at my other son's house, they'll be upset. Or where I put things away in the kitchen. I can't say, well, it's your brother's house, I put the plates over there. So you could say that that's a kind of ritual. Where do I put away the plates? Is everybody following this? But if I want a loving connection with the person whose house I'm staying at, then I have to do things the way that they like. And if I just say, well, that's just arbitrary. I mean, why do I have to put the plates in the left-hand cabinet? Your brother puts them in the right-hand cabinet. Right? Then that's not a loving, respectful relationship. So a lot of these so-called rituals are simply that God is a person and he has ways that he likes things. And if we want to connect with him, we do things in a way that he likes. So we have, coming down traditionally through the sacred writings, through the scriptures, there's various ceremonies for connection. Just like we have the uh, artik ceremony, where we offer incense, we offer a lamp, we offer flowers, we offer certain prayers, we offer pure vegetarian food. So these are all ceremonies of connection. And in every tradition, one is advised to do some sort of ceremony of connection every day. Just again, if I want to have a relationship with another human on earth, right, if there's a married couple, they want to have some connection, preferably daily, yes? If they don't have any time they connect every day, then gradually their relationship becomes hampered. Or anyone you want to keep up, if you don't keep up with them regularly. So we're advised on a regular basis, preferably daily, but it could be even once a week. There are certain times like in a month. Okay, this is a time when one connects with Krishna, when one connects with the divine. Basically a time when you say, you know, Krishna, this time is just for you. It's not for anything else. And again, we can understand this with all of our human relationships. Even people who have relationship with a pet. You know, okay, this is my time just to be with my dog. Yes? I'm just going to be petting my dog and I'm not going to be doing anything else. And we can think, if I have a child, I'm going to sit down and read a book with my child, play a game with my child, I'm going to go for a walk with my spouse, and I'm not going to do other things. I'm just going to be focused on this person. So in order to connect with the divine, to have some time. Now there are certain ways of connecting with Krishna where we could say the ceremonial aspect is very minimal. And one of those is chanting the Lord's name. So we have this mantra, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama. Hare. And this chanting of this mantra, this Hare Krishna mantra, does not require any particular time, does not require any particular place, does not require any sort of ritual at all. It's a way that we can connect with the divine anywhere, at any time, in any situation, no matter who we are, no matter what we are, no matter how we're living. Whereas some of the other ceremonies of connection have various requirements. 
then we can also certainly talk to the Lord. You know, we usually call that prayer. And we can say prayers that are taught and written by great saintly persons, or we can say our own prayers. Prabhupada's talking here about Krishna being our most intimate friend. And he's in our heart, Ishwara Sarabhutana, Vidyashayajunatistiti. So that means he's always with us. We can always talk to him. And Srila Prabhupada says that Krishna is anxious to talk to us. Now those of us who have children, we know that when the children grow up, generally the parents are more interested to talk to the children than the children are interested to talk to the parents. Or those of us who are adults, you know, we know that most of us are not so eager, I have to call my mother, I have to call my father. So Krishna is actually more eager to talk to us often than we are to talk to him. Oh, I'm so busy with my life. But we find if we talk to him, we'll get a response. We'll feel that connection. And we can talk to Krishna throughout the day as a friend. Just like we would talk to a friend. Oh, now I've woken up today. I'm excited that I'm going to have some consciousness of you throughout the day. And I'm looking forward to whatever adventure this day brings and how you're going to guide me. And I'm really going to try today to work without just being egotistical. <laughs> I'm going to try to work with a divine connection. Right? And then we can talk to him and say, Oops, I just messed up. I just worked out of ego. All right, let me try to hear you better next time. Oh, wow, I was really hearing you today, and it was just wonderful. I just felt that connection all the time. Thank you so much. One can just be thanking Krishna. He says that he joins with the air of life to digest the food. He said he's the light in the luminous objects. He's the heat and fire. What do they call it? The attitude of gratitude. It's also a way to connect with the divine, being grateful. Oh, frankly, any of us who, who live in a developed country like America, we have so much to be grateful for that we not, may not be aware of it every moment. Or we may end up taking it for granted that we have hot and cold running water and fruits and vegetables from all over the world and probably more clothes than we need and more pairs of shoes than we need. Yes? And if we have loving family and loving friends, if we have good health... So to be grateful, and to be grateful to Krishna, who ultimately is the doer and ultimately is the giver of all these things. And as we said, Krishna is the light in all luminous objects. He's the heat and fire. He mentions throughout the Bhagavad Gita, especially in chapters 7, 9, 10, and 15, how we can connect with him in the world. He said he's our ability, our ability to sit up, our ability to think, our ability to eat, our ability to sleep. He said he's our intelligence. You know that wonderful feeling when you figure out something, right? You're trying to figure it out. Oh, I got it. That's Krishna. That, that feeling of, oh, I understand that. I got that. That's Krishna. He said he's the strength of the strong. Right? This morning I, when I was cooking, I was trying to open a new bottle of vanilla and it just wouldn't open and wouldn't open and wouldn't open and wouldn't open. And finally I thought... Okay, the kids have this sticky toy. I could use that. And I took the sticky toy and I used that and then it opened. And I thought, oh, 
That's Krishna. He's my intelligence and my strength. You know, don't we feel that whenever you feel some strength? You can move something or some strength of mind or some strength of character. Yes? He says these dependences of the aesthetics, of the ascetics. When we do something that requires some difficulty, some sacrifice, that we tend to exult in that also. Oh, I put in that extra hour of work, or I helped out my family in this way. Right? But Krishna says he's that. So again, that feeling of joy that we get when we sacrifice for something, when we figure something out, when we have some strength. He says he's the fire of digestion. When we digest our food nicely. Isn't that wonderful, that feeling, when we digest our food nicely? Maybe again we take it for granted. I just chew and the food goes down the esophagus and it goes in the stomach and it goes in the small intestine, large intestine, it comes out and then I do it again and it just works. But Krishna says, I'm that fire of digestion and I'm the air moving the food along its pathway. And to know, well, that, that feels good. And to have strength and vitality in my body from digesting my food, right? That somehow I turned a cucumber into a fingernail. But that was Krishna. No, seriously. I mean, my fingernail was a cucumber yesterday. And before that, it was sunshine. You know, how, did, how does that happen? The sunshine gets transformed into a cucumber that gets transformed into a fingernail. And to be conscious of that. And that is Krishna. We can connect with Krishna by being the kind of person that pleases him. Which he explains very nicely in the 12th chapter, verses 13 through 20. One who is a kind friend to all living entities. One who does not put others into difficulty and does not feel difficulty from the actions of others. Yeah, we'll probably not be perfect at that, but at least that we make an effort. I don't want to put others into difficulty. And as soon as I try not to put others into difficulty, I can think, yes, that's pleasing to Krishna. If other people do something that would annoy me or upset me, and I'm like, you know, it's not that important. I'm not, I'm just going to let that annoyance just kind of flow past me. Then Krishna is pleased, and we feel that connection with Krishna. When we try to live a life of compassion and nonviolence and help towards others, to really be a kind friend to all living entities. And not just to other humans, and not just to other Americans, or not just other people who have the same amount of melanin in their skin, or speak the same language that we do, but even to the animals, to the bugs, to the plants. That we know we're pleasing Krishna, and we can feel that connection with Krishna. We can have that consciousness And this part of the Bhagavad Gita also comes when Krishna is talking about that when we do work according to our nature to please the Lord, we have a connection with Him. So whatever we love and we're good at, when we do that for our livelihood and we say, I'm doing this to be part of the universal body, to create a a wonderful society, to please you, Lord, because this universal body is yours, then also we become conscious. So there's so many ways. I haven't listed all the ways, but there's so many ways to be conscious of Krishna. We have the idea of ceremonies given in the scriptures, of chanting the Lord's names, of prayer, of talking to the Lord, 
of gratitude, of being conscious of Krishna in his energy, of trying to be a good person, not out of ego, I am a good person, not that way, but trying to be a good person to please Krishna. And in that way being conscious of him. And he's saying, if you're conscious of me like this, the obstacles of life will not be important. You'll cross them. You'll always have proper guidance. But if you're egotistical and you've lost the consciousness of me, you'll also be lost. So this is such a, it's such a simple message. It, it's not really that hard to do, but it does require some effort. It does require some effort. It's something that Krishna calls in the Bhagavad Gita abhyasa, abhyas yoga. Abhyas means practice, or literally it means to repeat. So being conscious of the divine is actually our natural state. You could say it's our default value, but we've, we've become unnatural. So we may have to make an effort, and a repeated effort, to be conscious of the existence of Krishna in our life. And of course, the more we practice, because it is natural, the more we practice, the less and less and less we'll have to make a deliberate effort. Does that make sense to everybody? But in the beginning it may take some practice, and in the beginning it may feel somewhat forced or artificial. Okay, how can I try to connect with the divine now? <laughs> Let me chant his name. Let me be aware of him. He's the heat and fire. Okay, the warmth I feel in this room, that's Krishna. My ability, my intelligence, that's Krishna. You may have to make that effort, but pretty soon it becomes awakened as part of us because it already is part of us. And after a while, we can't imagine going through life not being conscious of Krishna. We, be, we become awake. Right now they have this term about being woke. Okay? The real woke is when you're awoke to the divine. When you're, when you're awake to the fact that every living being is divine, every living being is part of Krishna, Krishna is everywhere, he's one's intimate friend in one's heart, and he's desiring and looking for a very personal, loving relationship where he guides us in such a way that we don't really feel the obstacles in our life are obstacles. So we have some time for... Questions, comments? Yes. Thank you so much for such an inspiring class. Um, something that you said really went deep, which was how it's not that Krishna makes the obstacles go away, um, because we do need to learn some lessons. But what differentiates a devotee from a regular person that isn't connected is that they don't see that as something negative, but as an opportunity for service. And I really appreciated your examples of how we can put that into practice. Um, it makes it easy for me to navigate that, because sometimes it's so hard to think, well, how can I mm. think of Krishna throughout mm. my day if I'm busy working and taking care of home and things like that? Right. Well, it's not only that the obstacles are there because we need lessons, but without obstacles, there's really not any enjoyment. When, when I was a new college student, I was in a creative writing class, and the professor said, 
every story has to have some sort of conflict. You know, just imagine a movie where it's just, Hi, I love you. Yes, I love you too. Let's live together forever and be happy. We are living together forever and being happy. Who would watch it? (laughs) There's the understanding we have from the Vedic literatures of spirituality is that it's personal and it's full of varieties of emotion. It's not that passing over all the obstacles means you're always like this. Hi, I'm spiritual. It's not like that. There's vari- if there wasn't variety of emotion, there's, there's no enjoyment. You know, something uh, interesting with food, you can, you can look this up. You can try it out. Let's say you have a plate with only one kind of food. You know, macaroni and cheese or whatever, your samosas or pizza or whatever you like. You'll get full faster if you only have one kind of food than if you have five kinds of food. We are able to eat more when there's a variety than we can if there's not a variety. Now, we could say that a biological reason for that is that we're healthier when we eat a variety of food. So it's kind of programmed into our biology to have more appetite for variety. But it's also the fact that life is boring if there's not variety. We have more of a taste and more of an appetite for variety. So there's also variety of emotion. But even the so-called negative emotions, like fear and anger even, ghastliness, sadness, even the so-called negative emotions when they're part of being with this adventure with the divine, are sources of happiness. And we can understand that a little bit by the fact that people intentionally watch sad movies or intentionally watch scary movies or do scary sports. We can think of fear as a negative emotion. Or people do things intentionally to get angry. It's why people go to political rallies. It is, seriously. They're trying to enjoy being angry. I'm very serious. Because there is a kind of spiritual enjoyable anger. What they're getting is a, is a perversion of it. Now, all of our material emotions are perversions of the spiritual. Even our material joy is a perversion of the spiritual. But there, there is a kind of blissful anger and blissful fear and blissful ghastliness and So part of these obstacles are because there's a drama. And without that drama in service, there's no fun. So even if we had absolutely no lessons to learn, even if we were completely self-realized and we didn't have any lessons, there's still drama because it's fun. It's fun to have some excited, scary fear about how's Krishna going to get me out of this situation? Yes. As you were speaking, I was symbolically thinking of the connection that we have. It kind of gets thicker as we exercise it. Mm. And instead of being a person with an ego, we are more expanded than that. And we realize that it's happening. It's happening. It's not happening to me. It's just happening. 
Well, eventually the ego actually, the, the, this false ego of I'm the center of the universe and everything's about me, and eventually it just sort of dissipates because it, it's not real. I mean, there is a real ego that you could, you could call it an ego of I'm a spiritual being and I'm in harmony with the divine in loving service. So, but that's what we, when we normally when we talk about someone who's egotistical, it's not what we mean. But the materialistic kind of ego, that, that's just false. It, it's, it's just nonsense. And so, one, the more we're in touch with the reality, the more that just kind of goes away. It, it's just not operative at all. It, it becomes, it fades and fades and fades until it, it's gone. It's very like uh, erroneous to wake up and live as one individual and thinking the world does that. Yeah, yeah, think, thinking that I'm the center of the world. Even Krishna doing it just for us, it's like we're, we're actually living in that. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. It's really interesting. In one sense, it's egotistical to think, well, Krishna's doing everything for me. But in another sense, he really is doing everything for each of us individually. I mean, Prabhupada says that he's our most intimate friend. And this is a great mystery, because if I think objectively, I'm absurdly insignificant. I mean, it's at the level of absurdity. If I look at the scale of the universe, right? I'm sure you've seen some of these things where the, like some animated thing where you see the, the universe and then the galaxy and the solar system and the earth and, you know, or sometimes it goes up. There's a person, and then there's California, and there's America, and there's the Earth, and then there's the solar system, and then there's the galaxy, and then there's the universe. Look, you just go up in an airplane, and people disappear. Right? You have to be practically landing before you see any people. So to think that Krishna is doing something specially for me, in one sense, is just sort of, What? What is my significance? But in another sense, Krishna is doing something specifically for each of us because he has love. And when you love somebody, even though they may be objectively insignificant, they're not insignificant to you. At every moment, so many people on this planet are dying or being diagnosed with cancer or getting injured and but if if it's someone that I love that's very meaningful to me yes or somebody's getting married or somebody's graduating or they're just getting a new job I mean at, at every moment right one of the things I realized by being on social media you know you can like scroll through your news feed and if you have enough context on social media I have thousands and thousands so if I scroll through on any particular day Somebody's having a baby, somebody's getting engaged, somebody's getting married, somebody's graduating, somebody got a new job, somebody's getting a divorce, somebody has a relative who died, somebody just got diagnosed with a disease, right? And if I multiply that by all the billions of people on the planet, but if I have a relationship with somebody and I care about them, then it does matter to me. So Krishna has a personal relationship with each one of us. How would non-attachment be connected to 
Okay, well, we're, we're starting to run out of time, but I'll do my best. So the concept of non-attachment is very dominant in the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, to be free of attachment and aversion. It's a repeating theme in the Bhagavad Gita and a repeating theme throughout all of the Vedic scriptures. Our process for non-attachment and aversion, because non-attachment doesn't mean aversion. Many times people think, if I'm not attached, then I have to be averse, I have to be hateful. But it's, it's a neutrality. So part of the process of neutrality is realizing that I ultimately don't have anything to do with this world. I'm a visitor. You know, just like if you're traveling and you're going to stay someplace for a night... Do you really care about the artwork? You know? So we're, we're really just staying here for the night. You know, it, it may seem like it's a long life, but it really isn't. In terms of the age of the cosmos, it's eight billionths of a second. So part of it is that. You know, I'm not, I'm not really part of this world. I'm just passing through in this lifetime. And what happens this way, that way, it really doesn't matter. I mean, even, even from a, just an ordinary perspective, a lot of the things that were very important to me, either good or bad, five years ago, I don't even remember anymore what to speak of their being meaningful anymore. Or if you look at children, you know, what's so important to them. And when they're older, they'll, they'll forget. So, you know, when I was five, it was like, this was wonderful, or this was catastrophic. I don't even remember what it was anymore. So you get this neutrality. But our particular school of spirituality goes beyond that. And it goes to have attachment for the spiritual that is personal. Because just being detached you'll be a lot more peaceful and happy than somebody who's involved in worldly matters. But we do want variety of emotion, not just peace. It's like, you know, if you want to take a break from life, you go to the beach and you look at the ocean. But eventually you want to go back to your life. You don't just want to look at the ocean. I mean, do we want to look at a blank screen or do we want to look at a drama on the screen? So we want to become absorbed in a reality that's more attractive than this spirit, than the material, flickering, temporary thing. And what Srila Prabhupada brought to the world is knowledge that there's a spiritual reality that's personal and full of variety. And the details of that variety. Now, I'm, I'm sure that this knowledge was in all the great spiritual traditions originally, but it's, it's hard to access it. You know, if you go to a church, they'll just say, well, Jesus said in God's kingdom there's many mansions, but I can't really tell you much about it. Okay, well, I know there's many mansions, but I, what, what's happening there? Whereas in the Gita, there's a little bit of an idea. You go to the Bhagavatam, 
go to the Chaitanya Charitamrita, then the works of the great saints like Rupa Goswami. You're going to get detailed descriptions of what is happening in reality. <coughs> and when one is absorbed in that, one's naturally detached from the material. It, it's, it's not only because it's flickering and temporary and superficial, but it's not nearly as interesting as the reality. And so our bhakti yoga way of material detachment is not to focus on material detachment so much. That's there. Cultivating a sense of neutrality towards attachment and aversion is there. But our main focus is on this much to tell, filling our consciousness with the divine. And automatically, the other thing happens. Yes? Yeah, thank you very much for the wonderful lecture. Um, you made a point uh, that Krishna tells us in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 12, um, you know, what kind of and how to be a good human being or what's that devotee to be. Um, and you mentioned that um, you, know, you should be uh, good to others, um, don't disturb others, and then don't be disturbed by, by others. By others, yes. So the third point, don't be disturbed by others, how do you do that in a practical manner? Hmm. How much time do I have? Do I have five minutes? Yes. Or am I out of time? No, I have five minutes. How do you do that in a practical manner? Most of the time, the reason we are disturbed by others is biological. We are, by Krishna's grace and Krishna's kindness, there are programs in our biology and psychology to preserve our body, to keep us safe. And so, just like we have a very instant and automatic response to a physical danger, like a barking dog, you know, an aggressive dog, or a coyote, or a car coming very close, and as soon as there's a physical danger, immediately we have stress hormones that go in our body to prepare us for preservation, yes? It happens this fast. It has to happen that fast. We can't analyze, is this dog dangerous or not? We may be dead. So that system is operative not only physiologically, but also psychologically, because we're social animals, we're herd animals. We have a very difficult time surviving on our own. I mean, it's possible. Some people have done it, but it, it's difficult. So we're dependent on our society for our physical existence. If I all of a sudden had to make all my own food and all my own clothing and all my own medicine and all my own shelter, it would be very difficult. We're even dependent to some extent on our status and position in the herd. You know, the higher status you have in the herd, the more food you get. This is true even among the animals. The higher status cow gets the food first. Did you know that? The cows have a... They do, they have a hierarchy. So not only are we physiologically alert to danger in our physical environment, an aggressive dog or a car, but we're also alert to dangers in our social environment that might signal that we're going to be in some kind of danger. So if somebody disrespects us, insults us, cheats us, betrays us, on a physiological level, our brain responds the same way we would respond to an aggressive coyote. I'm in danger. 
And these stress hormones immediately are activated for our protection. So if we understand that this is a biological mechanism that's built into our body, built into our brain for our protection by a loving God, but that we don't have to respond to that. We can step back for a minute and say, oh, this is a natural, physiological, chemical process, but I, as a civilized person, can step back and say, is there actually a danger? Am I in danger here? Am I really in danger? Do I have to respond? Or can I let the stress hormones just kind of peak and flow out like a wave in the ocean? If I don't respond to them, if I don't churn them, then they will simply subside. To see, you know, I'm in this machine of this body, but I don't, I don't need to be dictated by the body. It's, it's hard. Because the, the rush of chemicals comes. And the, the animal part of us wants to just go. But we have the ability to step back and say, is, is this real? Do I really need to do this? Now, is, is this where my safety and security lies? And then the next step is saying, I'm not this body. I'm a spiritual being. I'm a soul. I don't die. I can't be hurt. Even if everyone in the world hates me and insults me, and even if all the dogs attack me, I'm not this body. I'm always safe. I'm always okay. I'm always connected with the divine. I am eternal. And even if one says that just from an intellectual, philosophical basis, because it's true, gradually one starts to realize that and one starts to be not so reactive. One gets this detachment. But ultimately, above both of those methods is our attachment to the reality. Now, one technique I personally found extremely helpful is whatever disturbance other people are doing to me has some equivalency in a blissful reality. As we were saying, in the reality, there's all variety of emotions, but it's the reality of which this is a reflection. So there's apparent insult and betrayal and all kinds of things in the reality, but it's all fun. And those stories are throughout the scriptures. We have these stories directly in relationship to Krishna and in relationship to Krishna's devotees. So whatever is happening in the world can remind you of something in the reality. Now in order to use this technique, one has to thoroughly study things like the Bhagavatam. This technique's not possible if you're not familiar with the reality. But once you're familiar with the reality, and then you can think, oh, well, this happened to Dhruva Maharaj. I was just speaking the other day with somebody who was uh, unjustly accused of a crime without due process. Never saw the witnesses, never any kind of court case, and was, was, it was a terrible situation. I was just talking to them yesterday. And I said, can you think of anything in the scripture of somebody who suffered unjustly without due process? 
Oh, yeah, I think he's saying, what about the Pandavas? And I say, okay, which one of the Pandavas would you like to meditate on? And this person said, let's talk, talk about Nakul. I said, all right. I said, let's go deeply into how Nakul's feeling. So here he had been a prince. He had at all respect, directly pleasing the Lord, wonderful family. And then due to cheating and betrayal, he was deprived of everything and by the bad behavior of his older brother also. And so there he is in exile unjustly, separated from many of his family members, separated from his opulence. How did he feel? Now because Nakul is a saintly person and he's directly in relationship to Krishna, all of his feelings are divine. But there's still a range of feelings. And we started talking about how Nakul was feeling when he was in exile in the forest. And as we got deeper and deeper into his feelings, we started feeling ourselves this spiritual connection with Krishna that filled us with a variety of emotion that was very satisfying. And after we discussed like that for 10 minutes, I said, what about your situation? And he said, oh, oh yeah. It became insignificant. It, re it retreated into the realm of mist and, and mirrors and smoke. Is that all right? Okay, I think it's time for Artie. So thank you very much. And as I said, we just have a very, very few copies of... Uh